On today's episode, we're going to flash forward nine years, not flash forward from today. We're not going into 2028. Instead, we're going forward nine years after 18-year-old Christine Rothschild was found murdered, beaten, stabbed, and strangled, and left in some bushes on the UW-Madison's campus. That's three years after 15-year-old Tina Davison was savagely stabbed 61 times, her nude, lifeless body discarded on the shore of Lake Michigan. Not only are we moving forward nine years into 1976, we're also moving slightly outside of Madison, about a half hour west to the small town of Cross Plains. This is a Searching for Closure podcast. Tonight, another cold case from the Metro Police Homicide Files. It's a murder from 1973. July 21st, 1976 was a typical hot and muggy summer's day. The sun was beating down as two men were out accessing some farm fields along Old Sock Pass Road, about a mile east of Highway 14. Through the sizzle of the heat rising from the grass, they noticed a large black area towards the corner of the field. As they approached, they quickly realized exactly what they had stumbled upon. In the center of the burned heap was a burned and decomposing body of a 20-year-old woman named Deborah Bennett. Deborah had last been seen 11 days earlier, but no one reported her missing until the day her remains were actually found. On July 8th, around 7.15 p.m., Deborah was last seen by an 8-year-old girl. The girl said that Deborah was walking barefoot on the west side of Lost Gordon Avenue, heading toward Aberg Avenue. She had recently been evicted and was in the process of moving all her belongings out and into the new room she had rented at the Cardinal Hotel in downtown Madison. The girl said that she noticed that Deborah had painted toenails. She was wearing blue jeans and she was carrying a denim jacket and a brown shoulder strap purse. Deborah never did actually move into her new room at the Cardinal Hotel. She officially moved in on July 1st, but her clothes were found at her former apartment, where she was last seen alive. Deborah, who was originally from Ridgeway in Iowa County, another 40 minutes west of Cross Plains, had only lived in the area for a short amount of time. Her short and tragic story is one as old as time. It's one of those stories where a young, free-spirited woman who grows up in a small town feels like there's something bigger and better out there. They feel like a big fish in a small pond. They crave something more. So they move out into the big city, and everything that could go wrong does go wrong. Deborah's sister Sharon remembered her sister as being a popular girl. She always had lots of friends, but she wasn't very good at keeping secrets. She goes on to say that Deborah was very restless after she graduated high school. Sharon also stated that her sister was 
sort of a little girl who never really grew up. Deborah looked exactly how you would expect a girl to look from 1976. She had thick, dirty, blonde, wavy hair parted down the middle that hung past her shoulders. She was described as really quiet, small build, and very pretty. A really good person who didn't deserve to die like this. Does that sound familiar? Deborah had recently fallen on hard times before her murder, with being evicted and quitting her job only to apply for welfare. A woman who had worked with Deborah at one time stated that she was into drugs and, quote, a few other things, which may have played a role in her murder. She'd also been arrested the month prior to her death by Madison police as a suspect in a burglary, but she was never convicted. She was described as the type of girl who trusted everyone and was truly a good-hearted person. Seeing that she simply met the wrong person and paid for it with her life, much like the way I originally felt how Tina's final days played out. Her friend Karen said that she used to call her all the time, sometimes late at night, and she would read poetry to her that she'd written. One time at about 3.30 in the morning, Deborah called and read her this poem. Quote, If you must hate me, hate me always. And now when you are just upset with life, or confused and angry. If you must hurt me, leave me, for then I will be hurt only once. Don't lead me on and then drop me. If they love me, let them tell me, and not someone else, because I need to know. If you don't understand, don't tell me, because it's me that doesn't understand. If you would think, you would know that I do love them. End quote. Karen said, maybe this poem sums it all up. An article in the Capital Times newspaper from July 24, 1976, quoted Deborah's friend Karen as saying, the only reason that Deborah didn't have a driver's license was she was afraid she'd kill someone. Her fear of death was apparently really deep. Deborah was really concerned about dying. She was scared to die. Why would someone so young, with so much of their life ahead of them, have such a fear over death? A lot of people don't even have that fear in their 30s or 40s. So why would a 20-year-old? Most people obviously don't want to die. And most people never even consider the possibility. But it seems that some murder victims... They'll almost foresee their own death and somehow sense some extra fear, but they're not sure why they feel it so strongly. Or maybe that's just hindsight is twenty twenty. After you know the results of something, you can overexamine anything into fitting a narrative. Of course, maybe she really did have a feeling that something bad was going to happen. When the hotel manager of the Cardinal Hotel was asked about anything they might know, they said that Deborah didn't stay there at all. The day after she checked in, no one ever saw her again. Perhaps Deborah took the hitchhiking and came across a monster. This form of transportation was very popular in the 60s and 70s, 
and many individuals met with foul play because the wrong person picked them up. You've heard me talk about that quite a few times on this podcast. One thing authorities questioned was the possibility of suicide. See, Deborah's father was terminally ill with cancer at this time. And apparently Deborah had expressed worry and depression over her father's failing health. You know, I can relate to that. I mean, having just watched my own father slowly fade away from cancer. But Deborah's friend Karen said that all the times they discussed death with Deborah, Deborah made it clear that she didn't want to die and that she was afraid to die. So it sounds like suicide is not a very credible theory. Not too many people set themselves on fire in order to kill themselves, especially females. Women are far more likely to kill themselves with poison or take too many pills. The second most common form of suicide among women is slitting their wrists, as opposed to men who seem to prefer either shooting themselves hanging, or jumping to their death. Also, women usually try to, quote, pretty themselves up before dying. They don't want to be found in a negative way, as opposed to men who, you know, we just don't think about that aspect. So I find it highly unlikely that Deborah walked into that farm field and set herself on fire. Sadly, just a few days after Deborah's body was identified, Her father lost his battle with cancer and passed away. Perhaps the loss of his daughter weakened his fight against cancer and he just gave up any hope. Or the stress and heartache was just too much for his body to take anymore. The two shared a funeral and they were laid to rest on the same day. About three weeks after her body was discovered, Something very weird and unexplained happened. When a worker at the Cardinal Hotel went to check the mail that date, they found that Deborah's room key had been mailed back to the hotel. There was no note with it, no return address written on the envelope. There was no marks or hair or any kind of clues letting the police know who mailed this key back. Nothing course today they still had the stamp in the envelope they might be able to get dna from it there's obviously no dna testing all the way back in the 70s they did check for fingerprints but there was nothing so you have to ask yourself who sent this key back did the killer send it back was it a way to taunt the authorities much in the same way that the zodiac or Jack the Ripper or BTK would mail things to the press or the police? Or was it returned by someone who simply found the key on the side of the road? There was a return address on the key ring that was attached to it, so maybe it was just a good Samaritan who was trying to do the right thing. An autopsy conducted by Dr. Billy Bauman revealed that Deborah had been dead for at least 10 days, but the exact cause of death was unknown. The only way they could identify her was through a fractured collarbone and dental records. 
So if she was found on the 21st and she'd been missing since the 8th or 10th, depending on which article you read, I found the 8th more than I found the 10th, then she obviously wasn't kept alive for a long period of time. It sounds like she was murdered shortly after she was last seen. Although I'm sure in 1976, autopsies and forensic science weren't exactly cutting edge. As with Christine Rothschild's murder, this case was eventually filed away in a folder pending future leads. And it stayed in that folder, till it eventually became a cold case. I couldn't find a lot of evidence on this crime, to be honest. There are only a few articles or leads and almost no theories or rumors. The closest theory I could find was that someone just disposed of her after an accidental overdose. It also doesn't help that all the evidence in her case was lost with the evidence in the Christine Rothschild case. Now, the overdose disposal theory does make somewhat sense. The place where she was found was known to be a party spot. A place for people to go hiking and enjoy nature, but also a place for teenagers to go and have a little fun. Some beer cans were found nearby, but from what I read, no evidence was collected from them and they couldn't really be connected to the murder. Police also stated that they could find no connection to any drug use or the sale of any drugs. Regardless, you know, it's 1976. I have to imagine that more teenagers were smoking weed back then than there are today where it's legal in, what, how many states? I mean, I wasn't alive in the 70s, but it seems like it was a pretty free and wild time in history. Of course, that's purely speculation on my part. So if you were a teenager in the 70s and you never used any drugs at all, I did not mean to offend you. I apologize. In my humble opinion, it does make sense that perhaps she was out there having a little fun, maybe with some people that weren't exactly upstanding citizens, when something bad happened. Maybe she took a little too much of something. Maybe someone made a move on her and she resisted. The killer, feeling rejected, maybe lashed out on her because we don't know the cause of death, you can't really pinpoint anything. I do feel, however, that if the cause of death was a beating or a stabbing or strangulation, they should still be able to tell. If she died from something like a gunshot or multiple stabbings, it would leave evidence on the bones. And a beating would cause broken bones, obviously. And even strangulation would usually break at least a hyoid bone, all of which should still be evident even after burning, especially since they were able to ID her by the fact that she had a broken collarbone when she was eight and her teeth were in good enough condition for dental records to be a match. Regardless, perhaps the people involved in whatever, whether it be an overdose or accidental attack or full-blown assault. Maybe they got scared and tried to burn all the evidence. Of course, it could be way more sinister and 
Maybe she was simply burned to death. Two years would pass until another brutal discovery shook the city of Madison. It was once again a warm summer day, and once again, another young woman was found in a shallow grave, this time off a woodland road in Wanakee, just 14 miles from the city of Madison. If you have any tips, leads, or clues regarding any of the cases I cover, please email me at info at searchingforclosure.com or join our Facebook group, which can be found at facebook.com slash groups slash searchingforclosure. All these links along with photos, articles, and updates can be found at searchingforclosure.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you're instantly updated with any new episodes. If I do get any breaking news, you know, I'll release it as soon as I can record it instead of waiting for the normal release date. Also, please share this podcast with all your friends and family. Share it on Facebook. Tell your coworkers. Tell everyone you know. The more fresh eyes we have examining it, the more possibilities we have in seeing a new angle or something that might have been overlooked. Until next time, thank you for listening.